0: open our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John. And and I would be remiss since since I took such liberties of selfishness with my own anniversary. It's Jan and Diane Williams' 50th this week sometime. So 50 years. And Bill Galloway always said the first 50 is the hardest, right? That's right. Okay. (laughs) So So let's turn to John chapter 3. Now, I know this is our favorite Christmas passage. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, this morning we're going to examine a verse that, that from the study that I've done doesn't get much doesn't get much attention. Because if you follow the 25 most important words that were ever written, people read those and they go, Well, what else do I need? I mean, if you are John 3, 17. It's kind of hard to live up to your brother passage, John 3.16, okay? So if you ever have students, if you ever have a, a, uh, uh, your teacher says, now write the 25 most important words you can think of, well, you just write John 3.16, what else is there to say? What else is there to say? So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I'll read from John chapter 3. Heavenly Father, come upon us today that our eyes would be open to this, that we would see clearly what you have for us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. Now they say that familiarity breeds contempt, and and, uh, if you probably remember from your Sunday school days, or any Sunday school teacher here would tell you this is one of the first verses that everybody memorizes. Okay. Now most of us of a certain age, we'll put it that way, memorized it in King James and if pressed and if somebody comes up to you and says what's John 3 we still give it to him in King James okay because that's what's that's what we learned young and that's what's instilled within us but the unfortunate thing is it is so well fixed in our brains that we sometimes go Oh, yeah, and we just spout it off. You know, that's the danger when we say the Apostles' Creed every Sunday is that we don't actually think about what we're saying because we know it and and we just run through it or we just pray the Lord's Prayer because that's what we do and we just run through it instead of dwelling on the words, instead of understanding what it means. I mean, when we read John 3.16 and 3.17, for God so loved the world. And what kind of love is that? I mean, look at us. And I say this a lot. But look at us. Would you love us? And you say, well, of course. Of course, we're good people. Well, yeah, we might be good people, but really the perfect God. If he was going to create a bunch of people and love them, would it be us? And loved us so much that he gave his only son. His only son. Not, not one of his sons. Not his, um, um, you know, the one he really didn't like. You know. He didn't give us. He gave us his only begotten son if we believe we will not perish but have everlasting life and then he says because he didn't send his son into the world for judgment that comes later but this son came into the world that he might save us that the world might be saved well As familiar as this verse is, we can never let it get to the point where that we we just breeze through it or don't really take the time to understand it or don't really take the time to live it out and apply it in our lives. J. C. Ryle, who's who's a pretty good guy, wrote this. He says, A man may be ignorant of many things and still be a Christian. But if a man is ignorant of the things that we find in John three, then he is on the high road that leads to destruction. The high road that leads to destruction. You know, we we often think that, oh, man, well, there's so many things in in Scripture, and some of them are really complicated, and, you know, we can always punt and say, well, that's a mystery. God only made things mysteries that He wanted us not to understand. There are things that are simple and straightforward, and John chapter 3 is that, as we'll see more in just a moment. Now, there are many people who believe out there with all their hearts that they are Christians. And remember, it's not our job to determine who is and who isn't. That's the Lord's job. But there are certain signs that we can see, signs from their lives, things that they openly say they believe, and demonstrations of how they live those beliefs out. Those signs are centered on what they believe and how they live. And today we're just going to look really at what we believe. Now, I've heard people talk this way when asked the question, are you a Christian? And their response is, yes, I believe with all my heart that I am. Oh, great. But then the conversation goes on a little bit more, and we try to flesh out some things, like what kind of things do you believe? Do you, do you, do you believe in the reliability of the New Testament documents? I mean, in our, in our call to read those and fix those into our minds? And, and how about the Old Testament things? You believe in the Lordship of Christ in all areas of your life. Do you believe that Christ's died an atoning death on the cross for us, that he was raised bodily on the third day. Do you believe these things? Well, I've heard people, when we start to talk about that, they, they start to hedge their bets on some of those. And, and even to the point where uh, I heard one guy said, no, I really don't believe those things, but I'm a Christian. That's like me saying, I'm an NBA center." Okay. Now I know I'm only six feet tall and I'm doing nothing but getting shorter, but I'm an NBA center. I believe with all my heart that I can palm the basketball. See that? You know, I can dunk the basketball. No, I can't do that. That I can run like a deer up and down the floor. I can't do that either. But I'm an NBA center. I'm a Christian. I don't believe really in the reliability of New Testament documents. I, yeah, those are old. And how can we really hold those to our hearts? How can we really believe those? And and. And we know where babies come from. There's no virgin birth. But I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, begins to have a, we begin to have a problem with this. This is called technically Christian subjectivism. Christian subjectivism in its purest form. I can pick and choose what I want to believe and what I don't want to believe and still declare that I'm a Christian. Let me give you an illustration of this that I found. This guy is writing about this particular topic. And he says, I like the idea of Jesus, but I can't stand the church. Therefore, I want to identify directly with the primary source, Jesus, rather than with the annoyingly fallible human beings who have tried to follow him but have failed. That's us he's referring to. These people seem to describe a personalized and privatized journey free of the sins of the historical church, but with a direct hookup to the guy who started it all. I mean, it's just me and Jesus, and that's all I need, right? The scripture does mention going to church and gathering with the body of believers, things like that. What all this implies, however, is that the person who loves Jesus privately is somehow better at it than those who try to do it with other people. I remember the story about the, the... The pastor and he's new to town and there's this talk of this farmer and and this farmer hasn't been to church in a long time and and so he he comes out and he goes to visit this this farmer and he spends the day with him and then the farmers work they don't always talk that much so the pastor's there and he's helping him out and, and helping him and and not talking at the end of the day they're they're kind of sitting around the fire and and you know they're just kind of sitting there staring at the fire and, and the pastor brings up, we've kind of not seen you around. And the farmer says, oh, well, you know what I mean? The Lord, we're doing fine. And so the pastor takes a stick and he takes one of the embers from the fire and he flicks it out of the fire. And he leaves it over to the side. And pretty soon that ember goes out. And the rest of the fire is still going strong. And he looks at him and he just points at the ember. And the farmer goes, all right, I got it. Just like that. That's all was needed, okay? So so let let me finish this quote. Sorry I diverged. Uh, I have my personal views about the person of Jesus and who he was. I got my personal views, okay? And then, then the guy goes on to quote this other guy. He says, hey, like you ask a Muslim if they'll say, you ask a Muslim and they'll say Jesus was awesome. And they're not Christians, but they still love Jesus. No, they don't. They might think he's a prophet they might think he's a great guy but they do not love jesus the son of god the only savior who's come into this world they do not understand it this is the epitome of christian subjectivism i can believe what i want and still boldly and 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 without doubt proclaim that i'm a christian the 25 most important words ever written make it clear that god loved the world so much that he sent his son into the world now paul clarifies that he gives us some some great indication he says when did this take place while we were still sinners while we were still in our sin that's when he acted not when he he gave us the old eye and said you better get cleaned up and once you get your stuff together then I'll send my son into the world he didn't say that in the midst of our sin when we were enemies of God when we hated God that's when his son was given for us but simply knowing this doesn't make me, the professor of that truth or, or, or the recipient of that salvation. The rest of the verse makes it clear that belief in God's Son is the requirement of the salvation that he brings. Faith is the means, the channel of this gift, and without it you cannot receive the Lord. And again, Paul makes it clear. He clarifies this and says, what about faith? Faith is a gift, lest any man should boast. It's not a work. It's not something I I turn up within myself. It is given to us from our Heavenly Father. So I guess all this comes comes to this point that unless we have saving faith, we will never be able to understand and apply what we find in John 3, 16, 17. Saving faith. What specifically do we mean by saving faith? Look at verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Now, we're not universalists. We do not believe that everybody is automatically going to heaven. All you have to do is get in the club by being born or being conceived, and then you automatically go to heaven. When he talks about the world, he's talking about those who are his, those who belong to him. They will be eternally secure. They will be saved. That means that our opportunity to receive what he provides is now. It is right now at this portion of our lives before he comes again because he says, what happens next time when he comes? He's not going to bring salvation. He's going to bring judgment. And frankly, I want salvation far more than I want judgment. Now is the time, and there is no evidence, no matter how much we think or how much we believe or how much... We want to say that God is so compassionate that certainly He gives us another chance. That certainly when we stand before Him and we die and we go and we stand before Him, He's going to give us another chance to say, you know, now do you believe? I mean, really, who wouldn't? Here you are, you've died and you stand and here's the Son of God before you. Are you going to say, no, I don't believe in you? No, that's called post-mortem evangelism. And there are people who actually believe that. then that's that's a cool way to say, well, those who have never heard of the gospel will get a final chance. But we don't find any evidence of that in Scripture. Now is the time of salvation. Today is the day. We're not given the liberty to believe anything that we choose about Jesus and about the way that he works and how he came into this world because God has given us these things right before us. We are here on this day at this time of the year because hopefully we believe that Christ came into this world, born of a virgin, just like the Old Testament prophesied, just like it was said would happen. And we are here to celebrate that. God took on the form of a man and came into this world. It was incarnate God. Now, if you don't believe these things, well, good you're here today because you get to hear what they are and the truth But if you don't believe those things, if you don't believe that Jesus came into this world born of a virgin, if you don't believe in God incarnate, that he left the right hand of the Father and took on the form of a man and and did all those things in Scripture, if you don't believe those things and still say, proudly proclaim that you are a Christian, uh, uh, sorry, you don't fit the mold. You don't fit the parameters that say you need really to believe these things. Scripture is clear that without faith it is impossible to believe God. By grace you have been saved and that comes through faith. The things of salvation, the blessings that are ours in Christ, these things come through saving faith. John wrote the gospel, chapter 20. He says, why did, you know, the question is why did he write the gospel? So that you might believe in Jesus Christ. So that you might have saving faith. Why is it that so many people believe what they want to believe instead of believing what God tells us about himself. Well, okay, Rand. what do I need to believe? Well, instead of going on this great list of doctrines and everything like that, I have two things. Let's make it simple. Okay, I'm kind of a simple guy. Let's make it simple. First thing to believe, we are not perfect. In fact, we are far less than perfect. And because of this imperfection, we are forever separated from our Heavenly Father. That's the long way of saying we believe that we are sinful and our sin keeps us from the Lord. This would be the reason we need a Savior. And John 3.16 speaks of the possibility. Let's read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. So obviously, for those who do not believe, what happens to them? They perish. Mm. Well, I don't want to perish. I'd rather have what? Eternal life. Eternal life. We're sinful. God is perfect. And since God cannot tolerate sin in his presence, those who are not forgiven of that sin, what? Perish. Now, let's understand, as far as I know, when we talk about sin, none of us are really what we would Categorized as really bad here, right? There are no axe murders. Any axe murders here? Okay. Now we all have our, our sins that we do, but a society might even categorize us as good people, decent people, upstanding citizens, all of us. Not an axe murderer here. But to a perfect God, we are sinful. Because when you hold up perfection, Everything that is not perfection clearly stands out, right? And we are completely tainted by sin. Let's say I put a glass of water up here, and I bring out some deadly neurotoxin, okay? And I put a drop of that toxin, that poison, in the glass of water, okay? Now, which portion of that glass of water are you willing to drink? None of it. Why? Because it is all tainted by the poison. It is all evil. It is all deadly, And see, well, which portion of you is not tainted by sin? Uh -uh. No, no, not there. Uh, My heart, certainly not. My mind, certainly not. All of us are completely tainted by sin. That's total depravity. Not that we're as bad as we could be, but from head to toe, we have been tainted by the sin of Adam. And the text does not tell us that God so loved the world that he he overlooked our sins. No, it doesn't say overlooked. It doesn't say that God so loved the world that he waited on us to get it together so that he could. No, it doesn't say that either. God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for our sins. Now, this love that he has for us doesn't eradicate the realities of that one word that's in the verse, that perish. There are still people who will perish, and Jesus talks an incredible amount about What happens there? Mark chapter 9, as an example, talks about the realities of hell. It's often the worm does not die. I mean, this gnashing of teeth and fire and all this bad stuff. I mean, that's what happens to those who are outside of Christ. Those who perish, they suffer those things. So, contrary to to some of the popular writings today, there is a real hell, and it is an awful place. And how do we know this? Because Jesus talks about it. Jesus declares very clearly that those who are not within him, those who do not stand in Christ, those who do not know his forgiveness, will face those those punishments. They will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now you'll notice it does not mention that the punishment will come to an end when Christ returns. And then, then they will simply cease to exist. That's called annihilationism. The punishment that is laid out for those who are outside of Christ in Scripture is what? Eternal. I can't get my mind, I can't get my mind around eternal life with the Heavenly Father. I, can't, I certainly can't grasp eternal punishment. What does it look like? Well, the fires are never quenched. There's screaming, there's gnashing of teeth. It's a place where the worm does not die. And I love, love that illustration. Because if, if you set me out in the backyard, the worms are going to come and they're going to eat me. Right? And when. They've consumed all of me. What happens to them? Well, They don't have anything else to eat, so they die. In hell, they just eat me forever. I mean, that's, just, that's what it talks about here. Okay. Now, now, that's not a picture that always preaches very well. But that's what it says in God's Word that happens to those who are outside of Christ. So that's one. We're sinful. So the second thing we need to believe is that God loves us even in the midst of this sin. Now, this is really hard to get our minds around because here we are. We have offended God by our sin, but yet he loves us enough to send his son into this world to give his life for us. Now, what kind of love is this? What kind of craziness is this? That that the one we offend by our sin makes a way where that sin can be atoned for and our offense can be put aside and we can come back into his presence. How many of you who have been the recipient of some terrible offense and then gone to the person who has offended you and made a way where they can be made right in your presence again, where they can be forgiven? Not that you just forgiven them, but you make a way where they're, you know, maybe they owe you they, they swindled you out of ten or twenty thousand dollars, okay? And and no, let's make it more on biblical proportions. They've swindled you out of a hundred billion dollars. Okay? And you go to them and say, you know what? Not only am I going to forgive you of your debt, but I'm going to pay the hundred billion dollars of your debt. That's what the Lord has done. That's what he has done for us. So this is the love that he has for us while we were in our sin. We're sinners. We deserve the punishment of the Lord. We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his love. We don't deserve what we get from him. Now, there might be quite a bit about God's love and God's sin that we don't understand, but he has made the important things very simple and straightforward that we might understand. them. God loves us. He sent his son to save us. The next time he comes, he will judge us. And Jesus didn't come this first time. into a neutral world he didn't come into a world where life hung in the balance where there was this good and there was this evil and Jesus came to to save us in a sense from the dark side and to swing us over to the the side of right I mean that was already there he didn't come into a world like that he came into a world that was all on this side he came into a world that was lost He came into a world that was in darkness. He came into a world that was totally touched by sin so that he might save some, so that some may not face eternal punishment, so that the Heavenly Father, as as John says, he he reaches in and draws us unto himself that he might save some. Not all will be saved. Let's let's read in John chapter 3 a little bit more. Verse 18, For he who believes in him is not judged, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is judgment. The light has come into the world. Men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. Man, we just hate the light, the light of the gospel, the light of truth. I love my evil deeds and I want them over here with me. And then the light of the gospel comes and reveals these deeds. And, and when, when I, before I was in Christ, I didn't know my deeds were evil. I mean, there's societal pressures that may have said, well, you're doing wrong. But I didn't really understand how sinful they were. And along comes the perfect Christ. And it's the light of, of that grace and mercy that and shines in our lives. And I look at perfection now and I see the evilness of my deeds. And I say, I've got to have an answer for this because I can't get rid of this myself. But when that light comes, it also comes with the answer. And that answer is his love and his grace and his mercy. Well, let's look briefly, turn back a page, at a guy who came to Jesus, Nicodemus. Verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night. Now, we don't did he came to him by night because he was really busy during the day? Was he ashamed to be seen with Jesus? We don't know. But we what we do know is that, Over the course of his life, Nicodemus is really changed. I mean, this is the first step in in what happens in his life because we see him here in the third chapter, and then we see him later at the death and burial of Jesus, um, that that he has come around. His life has been changed. Now, he is a man of the Pharisees, a ruler ruler of the Jews. He belongs to a very select group of the top Jews. He's part of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling group. And it speaks volumes to say that the, which, the way that he was admired. Okay, and, and there's some thought that he was the best teacher of the Old Testament in the first century. Scrupulous, rigorous. One who, at least in the eyes of his contemporaries, had it all going on as far as his knowledge of the Old Testament. But yet he comes to Jesus and says, you're, you're teaching these things I just don't get. What do you mean be born again? How can that possibly be? These are things that I have been taught all my life from the Old Testament. And now you say what? You've come to fulfill these things? I, I, I don't understand. But they're more compelling than anything else I've heard in my entire life. How can this be? Well, the response to Nicodemus, Then I won't read the entire chapter, but we'll focus back again in our, our little verses here. Jesus responds to him and as you you understand he says you have to be born again and that's where we get the phrase you must be born again and and Nicodemus scratches his head and goes well I I crawled back into my mother How, how do you do this he's talking about this birth that comes with a new heart this birth that comes through Jesus Christ when we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord we'll know salvation so there are two ways in which he addresses this. Go to verse 17 again. Jesus addresses this negatively, and he addresses it positively, okay, which is kind of classic uh, way that Jesus often does this, or the Scripture does this. One, for God did not send his, world, his Son into the world that the world sh- Let me read it again. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. That's the negative thing. He didn't come to judge. Now, he could have come to judge. The world was sinful. I mean, what's the difference between when he came the first time and when he comes the second time? Will there still be sin in the world? Will there still be all these terrible things going on? Well, of course. But he comes first to save the world. Everyone that does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be seen. Remember back in the garden, when sin first hit the scene, so to speak. When Adam sinned and there was God walking in the, in the cool of the day through the garden. And wouldn't that have been something to see? Here comes the Lord walking through the garden. He's got one garden. He's got one man. He's got one woman. And he, what does he say? He says, Adam, where are you? And God's lost his man. Okay? And Adam and Eve were what? They were hiding because of their sins. And, and God goes and he, he asks them questions. It's not as if God didn't understand what was going on. He wanted Adam and Eve to understand. He wanted that reality of their sin and their shame and their separateness from God to be raised right in front of their eyes so that they could understand it. Well, the positive aspect of this is that he did come to save the world. He did come to give his life. He sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him that the world might be saved. And as we've addressed already, we're not universalists. The whole world is not coming to salvation, but those who belong to him are coming to salvation. Now, this is important because the Jews had a common misunderstanding and a common idea that when the Messiah came, the first thing that the Messiah would do would be to destroy all the pagans to destroy all the non-believers so that only the Jews would be around. And we see this back in Amos, and the Jews are really kind of excited about this happening. Uh, Amos uh, chapter 5 talks about it. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, I'm coming to the world to save the world, not to destroy the world, but to save the world. And not just Israel, but all those who will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. All those who will believe. He didn't come to destroy the Gentiles, but he came to save them. And he came, and that's why we're here. Because he was born, not in a mountaintop, not in a palace, but in a stable. And that's not where you think kings and saviors of the world are to be born. But yet that's the way in God's providence he wanted it. Now, this child was not just born, he was born to die, because we don't get salvation unless there's atonement for that sin. Nothing is so provoking and offensive to God as to refuse the glorious salvation he has provided at so mighty a cost by the death of his only begotten son. Nothing is so suicidal on the part of man as to turn away from the only remedy which can heal his soul. Friends, many of us are here all the time. When we hear these words, we can't let them just roll off our back. We have to examine our hearts. Am I in Christ? Do I come and, and rejoice at the birth of the baby because it's Christmas and that's what we do? Or do I rejoice at the birth of my Savior, the one who has come to take away my sin and change my life? That's the child who was born, the child who was born to die. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, what love is this that you, the perfect Lord, should send your Son into this world, and that He should willingly and obediently come and and. And die for us. And not just die, but bear the weight of our sin. Lord, many of us today remember the days when we weren't believers. We didn't really care about those things. We may have given lip service to the things of Christ, but they weren't preeminent in our hearts. They weren't burning within us, this, this passion, this 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 fire that the, the things of christ brings the, to know his grace and his love and and a joy that that we didn't had before our lives were changed and, and and now we understand these things you call us to a life that is so much more than what we knew before and it's only possible because you have made the way so heavenly father today i pray that our eyes would be open Lord, that we would understand the things of Christ. This child who came into this world, born of a virgin, 100% God and 100% man, came for us while we were still in our sin, that we would know forgiveness, that we would know the grace and the mercy that this world cannot offer and we cannot find anywhere outside of Christ. Fill our hearts with this, Lord. Open our eyes to this, that we would never be the same. We ask in his name, amen.